right, we're going through Journey Through Genesis. This is part 9. We're going to go through Genesis 9, finish that up, hit Genesis 10, finish that up, and go into Genesis 11 all in one night. It's a miracle. Well, it will be if we pull this off. So I want to say a prayer, and then we're going to jump into these passages. Father, I thank you so much for your goodness. I thank you, Lord, for your word. I pray, God, that you would teach us, that you would reveal truth to us, God. Somehow, Lord, that you could touch us on the inside, God. Put some truth, deposit some foundational truth there, God, that stirs us and shows us more of you and your character and your goodness. And we give you praise for that right now. In Jesus' name, everybody say amen. Now, these are fascinating scriptures. We have come through the flood, not Harvey's flood, but the flood that we saw in Genesis 6 and Genesis 7. We've come through the flood. And we've disembarked, we've gotten off of the ark, the ark of Noah, Noah's ark. And we are, we are looking at some fascinating times as mankind replenishes and fills up the earth. These are controversial scriptures. They cover generations, hundreds of years. Gaps are all in there. We don't have every detail. We have the pertinent points. But as we creep along through these verses, there are some profound things that we see that I think just shed some light on the bigger picture. Now, remember, we dealt with the fact that Noah said cursed is Canaan. Canaan did something immoral to Noah. We don't have the details of that. It appears to have been some kind of sexual inappropriate behavior definitely problematic, and Ham's reaction was one that was not to Noah's liking. In other words, Noah's grandson, Canaan, did something. Ham knows what's up and reacts in the wrong way, and so Noah cursed Canaan. One of the curses, as we're going to see in some more scriptures tonight, one of the things that Noah said about him is that he will be a servant. He will be a servant to his brothers. We discussed this. I told you about a white supremacist I met who had a theology that, well, first of all, presupposed that Canaan, the grandson of Noah, was white, which is just hilarious, and that God made him dark-skinned, black. I told you that story, ignorance, stupidity. I really didn't tell you the end of that story, though, because I was able to teach that man a Bible study. God touched his life profoundly. I baptized that man in Jesus' name years later, and he thanked me uh, a couple of weeks before he died with tears in his eyes and said, I want to thank you for what you've done for me. It was a very cool ending to that story. But in Genesis 9, we get into this idea of the table of nations. That's what it's called historically. And it's the breakdown of where the sons of Noah settled. And it gives us insight into the origins of people groups. People groups. Remember the command was to spread out. Noah disembarks. Things happen. But the bottom line was the Lord said spread out. Fill up the earth. The same thing that he had told Adam and Eve, fill up the earth, spread out, replenish it. And out of all the people mentioned 
in Genesis chapter 9, and there are quite a few. I'm not going to read through the genealogies found in Genesis chapter 9, and you can thank me later. But I am going to go through several verses. Out of all the people, and there's tons of them mentioned in Genesis 9, one stands out above the rest, and we will see his influence leading into Genesis chapter 11. So in Genesis 10, starting with verse 8, I want to start reading from there and go into verse 12. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth, a mighty one. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That's what people used to say about me when I hunted. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. You see this? This is like a saying. It's a thing in his generation. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it's said, you're like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Achad, Kalna, in the land of Shinar. Now, I grew up, I went to a seminary, and I had a professor who called that the, the land of Shinar. And this guy that talked to me, Jonathan Hershon, he was, he was Persian. And so when he said the Valley of Shinar, you just had to see him say it. He talked about the Valley of Shinar. And as he said it, we, like, as students, were fascinated by his accent, his look. And it just looked like it meant more when he said the Valley of Shinar. And so we started counting how many times he would say it in class. Somewhere in my notes, somewhere, I have how many times he said the Valley or the Land of Shinar. But this Land of Shinar or Shinar, from that land he went to Assyria, built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, Kalah and Rezin between Nineveh and Kalah, that is the principal city. This is all around Iraq or modern-day Iraq, Babylon, and all these areas here are in that vicinity. The name Nimrod is probably not a man's name. It's actually referencing his character, which Scripture will do from time to time. The name Nimrod, the word Nimrod, means rebellion, an ongoing rebellion. And his hunting was less about putting trophies on the wall, putting on some orange, getting up early in the morning, grabbing his bow and arrows, taking down some deer, you know, hanging them up on the wall. His prey was more about hunting people, hunting men, garnering, gathering mankind to follow him. Hunters use camouflage. You know, they don't all wear orange. As a matter of fact, if you go out in the woods, especially in bow season, you might creep up on a hunter who's up in a tree, and you'll never see him. 
It'll be a miracle if you see him or her up in that tree because they're all camoed out. They got the paint on. You can't see them. They done sprayed stuff around so the little deer can't smell them. They've got all kind of trickery, shenanigans, camouflage, strategy, cunning, trickery, traps. And it's all about catching their prey. And that is really what Nimrod was doing. He was a rebel and he was proselyting. He was converting people to follow his rebellious ways. He was a hunter in that fashion. Sounds like another hunter I know. 1 Peter 5 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The devil is a liar, a deceiver. He observes. He sets traps. He tricks. He's stealthy. And he's clever. Have you ever been tricked or trapped by the devil? Absolutely. Every one of us have. Some say, not me. Well, you just got trapped just then, you know, because you lied. We've all been trapped and tricked at times by this great deceiver. Nimrod led the first rebellion after the flood, post Deluvian. There's much speculation about Nimrod. Like I said, probably that's not his name. A description of his character is what that is. Like the writer didn't even want to give him the luxury of having his name mentioned. So he leaves him nameless. And that's going to come back here in just uh, a few minutes. Some equate Nimrod with the ancient Gilgamesh from the epic of Gilgamesh. Some equate him to Egypt's legendary Horus. We do know this. He was a conqueror and a tyrant. He was the world's first monarch, one who led a rebellion against the God who flooded the earth. And we know that he headed up a religious system. you got to think about it. Think of the stunning reality that God who created the heavens and the earth, God who created Adam and Eve, God who created them in His image and after His likeness, God decided to wipe out millions of people in the flood. How offensive of a thing is that in the face of humanity? Humanity had rebelled against God. Noah was the last man standing. We've already dealt with all of that. And so God wipes them out. There's not anything anybody can do. God is completely victorious in his quest. Man is completely defeated in his resistance. It's futile. And Noah's the last man who stands. God only saves Noah. And so somewhere down the line, some descendants in hearing the story become angry at God and decide to rebel against him again and to bring vengeance. Man railing against the plans and purposes of God. We will stop God. He will never do this to us again. 
Are you with me? And so that is headed up first time by Nimrod. Now, there's been many since. I mean, that's an antichrist spirit, right? It's in the world today. There's been many antichrists working against the plan of God, which is ultimately expressed in the Christ, in Jesus. It's all about Jesus, people, and mission. And Jesus came. The, 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 the plan was fulfilled and is being fulfilled. But there are antichrists. We hear after the flood, the first one was a guy they called Nimrod. Now, according to some rabbinical tradition, and those rabbis had vivid imaginations, and they don't give all their sources, it was just passed down. So this is not in Holy Scripture, but there are glimpses, hints, innuendos, allegations, that are wrapped up in the Scripture, conclusions drawn from them, but also reading into it somewhat. But listen to this. This is fascinating. Rabbinical tradition, the rabbis, you know, the Jewish rabbis throughout history and pre-Jesus, pre-Bethlehem. Listen to this. Nimrod claimed the God of the flood was evil. He led a revolt against him. Nimrod demanded loyalty from his subjects. He had astrologers. One writer said by arms or by arts. And that could even be magic, dark arts, demonic help. He seized control of much of humanity. Check this out. He was a descendant of Ham. The prophetic curse of Noah was that the descendants of Ham would serve their brethren. And it's as if to say he would not be subject to that prophecy. And so to preempt this, he began to set about dominating, ruling over them, setting traps, entrapping them, getting them in his snares. The rabbis say one of his most loyal subjects, check this out, was a man by the name of Terah. Nimrod was afraid of the Genesis 3.15 prophecy that was alive and well at his time. Genesis 3.15, you'll remember the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. It was inevitable, yet Nimrod was one of the first ones after the flood to say, I can stop that. And the rabbis claim that a bright star began to shine over Shinar, and his astrologists began to study it, and they became increasingly paranoid that that star, this is pre-Bethlehem, way back, that that star was an indication that the seed of the woman was about to be born. And so Nimrod began to pull in expectant mothers to his palace. It became like a nursery. And any time a daughter was born, that mother would be sent back home with lavish gifts. But any time a son was born, out of fear, he would slaughter those newborn boys. Again, this goes back before Pharaoh. uh, uh, This goes back before uh, Herod killed the little boys in his day. 
the bottom line is this. Terah would have a son, and the rabbis say he hid him from his king, Nimrod. And that son that Terah had, his name was Abram. We know that. His name was Abram. If that's true, and I don't know for sure, it's just interesting, and I wanted to present it to you tonight. If that's true, it's fascinating. The Bible says we understand that Abram came from a bunch of idol makers, idol worshipers. I preached about him on Sunday. We're going to see him in Genesis, the end of 11, and in Genesis chapter 12 and on. He becomes the grand poobah, right, of the Old Testament. Jesus is called the seed of Abraham. Genesis uh, 11, though, or Genesis chapter 10, is introducing us to this idea that Nimrod comes on the scene and begins to rebel against God. If the rabbis are correct, we know that Terah was an idol worshiper, probably an idol maker. He was in rebellion early on after the flood against the one true and living God. And we know that God did speak to his son Abram, revealed himself. Abram had no idea about the reality of this God. He had been taught he was evil. He was, been t- he was taught that he didn't care for humanity. He had been taught all kind of lies. Are you with me? About the one true and living God. But then God showed up and said, Abram, let me introduce myself to you. I am the God who created heaven and earth. I'm the true and living God. I'm the God that brought the flood. But you need to separate yourself from your father's household. Get away from his ideas and his preconceptions because I'm going to show you something special. Let me just say this right now. That does make sense when I look at the idea of Nimrod being a hunter and the devil being a hunter as well, seeking whom he may devour. There's so many misconceptions that he sold to people, lies that people have bought in about God. He's evil. He's against me. He's not for me. He took this away from me. He took grandma. He took my baby. He took my aunt. He did this. He did that. And people have bought into all kind of stuff that the devil uh, sold them. But I want to tell you the truth of the matter. He is good, and his mercy is everlasting. The devil is a liar. If the devil said he's bad, you can take it to the bank. He's good. Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. My God is a good God, and he's got a plan for your life, and he's got a plan for my life. And my story's not over, and your story's not over either. Amen? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Give him some praise. Can you do it on a Wednesday night? Now, Genesis 10 ends like this. These were the families of the sons of Noah according to their generations in their nations. And from these, the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. Now, they're going to disperse, but not yet. That's going to take place in chapter 11. So let's go there. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Now, the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, 
let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. Notice, one language, one speech. Humanity had come from Adam and Eve. They spoke a language. All of humanity spoke a language. Think of the language barriers that we have to deal with today. If you've ever traveled overseas or just traveling around in the city and you come across somebody that doesn't speak English or a language you speak. I even hear people speak Cajun English. I'm like, excuse me? I mean, and my great-grandmother, her name was Mama. She didn't even speak English. My papa spoke French and Cajun English. And but by me, like here I am, and they're like, "Shaq, what's Just like go on, and I'm like, "What? I, I didn't get that." And they'll still th- throw little little things around. You're like, "What well, got to freeze on?" I'm like, "What? What? What?" And you know those those little statements like that. Well, you travel abroad, you get. I'll never forget years ago, Valerie and I, two kids. Alexander wasn't around yet. We traveled the country in a Smurf blue van, a van that we bought from the power company in Brownsville, Texas. It was Smurf Mobile, we called it, Smurf Mobile. It was blue, Smurf blue. It, it was a window van, no cool factor. White bumpers, front and back, white wheels with hubcaps. And we traveled and pulled a travel trailer all over the country with that thing. And we were in El Paso, Texas, and we thought, Hey, we're right here by Mexico. Let's take the kids into Juarez, Juarez, Mexico. And so we loaded up the kids. We had parked our trailer at a church where we were preaching, and we headed across the border. I mean, I was so excited. We're going to get over here. Kids. I remember as a kid going into Mexico and going to the market and buying these little marionette puppets. Pedro the marionette. Oh, it was so cool. You kids are going to love this. And so they're all excited, you know, like there's a, they're buzzing, excited. And so we crossed the border, and immediately I realized we have a problem because all the signs are not in English. Nobody speaks English, or they don't act like they do. And I'm completely lost. I don't know where the market is. And I'm like, oh, you know, yeah, ooh, donde este el baño? That's the wrong question. Uh, what's, what's the, I don't know what to say. Like I was completely lost and a guy pedals up on a bike and he said, you want the market? I said, yeah, I want the market. And so he said, follow me. So he's on a bicycle. I'm driving my Smurfmobile blue van and we take off and we follow him. And it seems like we're leaving town and we get on the outskirts and he stops in front of this little tiny store and he says, market. And I said, uh, I said, uh, this isn't the market. He's like, this is the market. Like he gets all offended at me, you know. And I'm like, this is not the market. Anyhow, the problem was I didn't understand the language. Had I been able to have a conversation, hey, where's that big old market with the marionette puppets for my kids? That would have been one thing. But we're doing like market and market, like market. There was no 
communicate, very, very limited communication in our ability to accomplish anything. Can you imagine if that fella and, and me got together and we're like, let's build a house. Wow. First of all, that'd be wrong on so many levels with me building a house. But then it would have taken us forever because of the language barrier. But the language was not a problem at the Tower of Babel because the earth, the whole earth, was of one language and one speech. Now, the purpose of the Tower of Babel was not to build a pretty ziggurat that went up to heaven. It wasn't to even get high enough to go into heaven. As a matter of fact, we'll see it. The Lord's going to say, ooh, what they're proposing because of their unity, they'll be able to accomplish it. So was God saying, oh, i got to stop it because they're going to build a tower so high that they're going to be knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door before you know it. The pearly gates, Peter's going to say, oh, Lord. Here. Well, Peter wasn't there. You know what I'm saying, though. <laughs> and so they're building this tower to heaven. Now, we've sent spacecraft into space. We've sent stuff far, far away to the outer edges of the galaxy, and we didn't see heaven. First of all, I think those things speak of transdimensional whatever. Like, it gets deep, I think. But secondly, there's a spirit realm. Speaking of other dimensions, there's a spirit realm. Science has its explanations and definitions and explorations. But I'm just telling you right now, just like there are radio waves all up in this air, and there are Internet wireless signals going all over the place, and you can't see them and you can't feel them in the same way, but in another realm, there is a spiritual world that is just as real, if not more so, than this realm that we're in right now. I used to deal with my wild boys, and they'd drop some acid or do some drugs, and they'd have spiritual experiences. And I would say, I believe in those spiritual experiences. They're real. I'm not denying them. It's just you have gotten access through an illegal entry way. And you have no protection, and it's going to bite your face off. Am I telling the truth? And I, there were some faces missing in the wild boys because they got their faces bit off in that realm. But I'm just telling you, there's a spirit world that is so real. And part of the building of the Tower of Babel was to enter into that spiritual dimension, to take that role that God had and assume it by self. In other words, they were trying to save themselves and be their own deliverers. And if that old God ever decided to flood the earth again, they could get up in their tower, at least some of them, and they could save themselves. They would not have to rely on God or a boat. They were angry, and they were rebelling against God. It was all about Nimrod. It was all about self. The message he was selling is, we don't not need God. We've got ourselves. And brothers and sisters, we got a world that's just like that. We don't need God. We've got ourselves. I'm telling you, common sense, biblical values that used to be a part of the fiber of this nation are being threaded out 
they've got a seam ripper in the culture, and they're pulling word out and just removing it. The Old English, Paul wrote it a lot in the, New, in the King James Version. The wording is lasciviousness. It's, it's a word that means lack of restraint, no restraint. There's no restraint of the word. There's no discipline on humanity and the depravity of the human heart coming from the word. And the law used to have word influence in it and was used as an instrument of righteousness. But the law, the word is being extracted from our nation, from our laws, and it's leaving us frazzled, and we have no restraint. And so the world's going nuts. And what is it? It's a rebellion against God and an exaltation of self. When I was in Nashville back in the 80s, I used to be all new age and go to crystal shops. You don't want to hear all that stuff. But it was all about self. And it was called the new age. And it wasn't nothing new about it. It's ancient. It goes back to we can save ourselves. And that was new age, 80s, whatever you call it today. It's the same spirit. And there is a devourer that's whispering in the ears of our culture saying we don't need God. We don't need his word. We've got ourselves. We've got each other. We can save ourselves. Just you wait and see. But I'm telling you, my God's going to descend from the heavens with a shout and with the voice of the archangel. Every eye will behold him. Everybody will know. He is the one true and living God. Amen. And, and I, I, I almost hesitate to go back to it, but it's, it's so powerful. That second psalm, why do the nations rage? Think of Nimrod raising himself up and this tower of Babel being erected like it's some awesome thing. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth, Nimrod, set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let's break the bonds in pieces and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord will have them in derision. He'll speak to them in his wrath, distress in them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possessions. You shall break them with a rod iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings, Nimrod, all you antichrists. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son. That's the seed of the woman. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his, uh, when, when his, his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. Nimrod is not even the leader's name. This is amazing to me. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. Nimrod very likely is not even their leader's name. They never got this name they were after. And they never will. The old song used to sing it, say it. Kings and kingdoms shall all pass away. But there's something about that name. That wonderful name of Jesus. Name above all names. King of kings and Lord 
of lords. Something about that name. Look at verse number 5. We'll start there. Are you with me? Isn't this exciting? On a Wednesday night, no place you'd rather be than right here, right? There we go. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the languages, the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. It's like the Lord looked down and saw the ants working. You know how ants work. Came in here today, somebody had spilled some, I don't know, Sunday somebody had a box of sugar, and there was a pile of Sugar something or another, sugar candy, it was sugar, some kind of colored, I don't know, pixie stick, something like that. And look closer, and there were ants all over it, ants all over that. And those ants, they're relentless, right? They find something, little messenger goes and tells the whole colony, and here they come. And they're just like a machine, an unstoppable machine. But they really are stoppable. All you got to do is just kind of put your faint well you know, maybe a foot in Louisiana especially, and just kind of shake it up. And the, what do they do? The next thing you know, they're like going, like, where's where's my leader? You know, where is it? That's exactly what God did. They were about a mission. And the Lord just kind of changed their languages. And the next thing you knew, they were all scattering. And they went in three primary directions around uh from that Shinar, that Tower of Babylon, they went in three primary directions, and we see from this and from the names and from the areas that they settled, we can deduce where the descendants of Ham, Shem, and Japheth went. The descendants of Ham went into Africa, Egypt, Libya, Ethiopia, Canaan, you have uh, the Chinese, Mongols, Japanese, Native American, American Indians, South Sea Islanders, Inuits or uh, Eskimos. Uh, Shem, you have Jews, Arabs, Iraqis, Iranians, Japheth. You have Indo-Europeans, Russians, Germans, Brits, Greeks, Turks, Spaniards, Italians, and on and on. And you see, I should have put a map up there. You can kind of see where they ended up going and settling from this diaspora, this dispersion of the people groups. And like I mentioned to you last time, they were going to certain areas. 
preordained by God. The language forced them to abandon the work at Shinar and to move on and forget that project. God wanted them to get in their places because he had a play that was about to begin. He had another chapter of the story that was about to unfold. And so they had to get in position. And so divinely, supernaturally, he confounds their languages. How did he do that? I have no idea. He came in and like, whatever, put a fresh perspective on the language center of the brain like language. And they were only able to communicate with the other people speaking their language. So that meant they had to team up. And those teams, those families separated and went their separate separate ways. Now, what's fascinating about that, a couple things, is that we're going to see later in the book of Acts where the Lord comes and supernaturally causes people to speak languages they had not previously learned either. We call it, the Greek is glossalia. It's speaking in tongues. He would cause them to speak in tongues, and they would end up scattering and taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. So here you have predating that, and for totally different reasons, but interestingly enough, people speaking in tongues, but it was languages they had not previously learned that God like puts it in them, and that becomes their native language. And those people groups begin to scatter over the face of the earth. And I want to look at a scripture in Acts chapter 17. I mentioned it, but I, I, I want to give some detail on it in closing tonight. You like this? Is this cool? Interesting? It's interesting. Acts chapter 17. Hey, listen, God's got it under control. Don't wring your hands. You don't have to worry. You don't have to sweat it. God knows what he's doing. You just stay in faith. You just walk with him and watch what he does. Acts chapter 17. Now, this is Paul preaching at Athens. Verse 22. I'm in the King James right now. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Paul had gone into Athens. He was overwhelmed by the idolatry, but he found this little thread of hope. They had this altar in case they had missed a God to the unknown God. And he says, he took that as his stage and he said, that God is my God. Verse 24, God that made the world and all things therein. This God that Nimrod and his people were rebelling against at the Tower of Babel, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwells not in temples made with hands, neither is worship with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath in all things. Listen, 
and hath made of one blood. Everybody say one blood. All nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. Notice. Nimrod said, we're going to stay here in the valley of Shinar. We're going to build this tower. We're going to save ourselves. And in essence, like Cain killing Abel, because the devil whispered in his ear, we're going to stop the seed of the woman from ever being born in the first place. We're going to stop it. But oh no, God, God knew I've got a plan. And it involves all of spreading out over the face of the earth. And I'm going to make you do what I have appointed you to do. I've got bounds. I've got habitations. I've got places I've already determined. Listen, verse 27, that they should seek the Lord if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from any of us. And I mentioned this last time, and I'll close with this. It's fascinating. The descendants of Noah would see the earth. All of us came either from Ham, Shem, or Japheth, or a combination. But we all go back to Adam and Eve through the bottleneck of Ham, Shem, Japheth, and Noah going backwards. The bottom line is this. We all come from Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Those boys, Ham, dominated the world. Those Africans, those Egyptians with their dynasties, they were the most dominant force. What was the purpose? If happily they might show, be a witness of God and His greatness. You know what they did? They had Horus, which some say is Nimrod. They had Osiris. They had Ra. They had the sun god. They had all these different gods. They did not. They were not the witness. The descendants of Shem in the golden age of David, Solomon, they come on the scene. They did a good job, but then they lost their way. Backslid, diaspora, spread out. Tribes all over the place. Idolatry all up in the Semitic line. Japheth, for the last 2,000 years, has reigned. You had the destruction of Jerusalem, 70 A.D., and we've seen the Japhetic, the Indo-Europeans, reigning, ruling, dominating the earth. The failure that we see today in humanity is on the Japhetic line, and I know those are generalizations. The bottom line is this. We need a Savior. First of all, we need a Savior. We can't save ourselves. We need a Savior. The second thing is this. No matter who all has fallen and failed, God has seen to it that His purpose was achieved. And if you want to see the hand of God move powerfully in your life, you either yield to Him or resist Him. One way or another, His hand is going to move powerfully on you, either to get you out of the way or to scoot you on your way because He is going to get His purpose accomplished. Won't you stand with me right now? And Genesis 9, Genesis 10, Genesis 11, show this to us. And then finally, and I'm closing, at the end of Genesis chapter 11, I absolutely love this. At the very end of Genesis chapter 11, it says, Nahor lived 29 years and begot Terah. 
After he begot Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and begot sons and daughters. And Terah lived 70 years. And in his old age, sounds familiar, begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot. Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldees. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren and had no child. So Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot and the son of Haran and his daughter-in-law Sarah, his son Abram's wife. And they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Chapter 12 starts and says, And God appeared to Abram. He had appeared to Abram. And he said, Get out from your father's household. So now we begin to enter into the Abram saga, which is epic. Genesis 12 through 22. Powerful things. A hundred years of history with Abram. But Abram was a man. Adam had blown it. Noah, his sons. But Abram comes along. This was the guy that got a lot of things right. So we'll get into that. I want to say a prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word. All these little genealogies, interesting histories, God. Pieces missing. But, Lord, we see through it all, we do see your hand working. Because we do know that the seed of Abraham was born. But ironically, strangely enough, Jesus, Lord, you said, before Abraham was, I am. Lord, we knew, we know that you had the plan all along, all together, and you saw to it that it would come to pass. And God, if you had that plan together and you brought it to pass and you worked through all those intricacies, God, you can work in my life. You can work in the life of this congregation. You can work through all the complications, the failures, the mistakes, Lord. And you can work with us. If you worked with somebody like Abram, you can work with somebody like Donovan. You can work with somebody like Valerie. You can work with somebody like everybody in this room. In the name of Jesus.